You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. If you are new with us, we're in the book of Acts. We've been in it since September. And we're getting into the last few Sundays of the book of Acts. I think we gave it 14, 15, 16 weeks, something like that. And so with that, sometimes we have to fill in some gaps of passages that we ran through really quickly. And so um, we'll be in Acts 19 today, but this touches, this passage touches on something that we touch on a lot, but it's also something that many of us care about in one way or another. Sometimes we care about it more than we should, but that is money. Now you go, hey, you know, it's my first Sunday here, is the pastor talking about money and giving? No. But I am talking about business and livelihood, your job, and probably in some way something that you care about. Earning income enough to provide for needs is an important part of living life. But at different times in our lives, we might realize that perhaps the industry of which we're a part or the working environment or the things that we're being asked to do may not align with what we understand about Jesus. They may not be the same. And, and many of you have probably been in a spot like that. Where you go, man, I just don't, I don't know if somebody who follows Jesus can do this. Well, we're gonna be in a similar vein there as we are in Paul's third missionary journey. In Paul's third missionary journey, so we were in the second in his Athens speech last week, uh, now he spends the bulk of his time in his third missionary journey in Ephesus. Years of his life go into Ephesus. In fact, next week we'll have uh, Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders at the end of journey chapter three. And he just loves those people because of how much energy he has poured into them. And chapter 19 covers a lot of his ministry in Ephesus. And it's interesting as people come to faith that things in that culture, specifically regarding business, start to shift. And so a question that I thought would be good for us this morning is just what happens when the gospel comes to a city? Now this doesn't always happen in this way, but there's something interesting that happens when the gospel comes to Ephesus that I think we need to pay attention to and might apply to us more than we even realize. So we'll be in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, just 21 to the end of chapter 19. But as we get into that, I want to just highlight a couple of things that happened. At the beginning of chapter 19, <clears throat> Paul is headed to Ephesus and he engages with some folks that did not understand the baptism of the Spirit. They only understood the baptism of John. Now John, the Baptist, was one who was pointing people to Jesus, but his baptism, in a sense, was not complete because Jesus had come. And now when Jesus comes, you're being baptized as believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us that, tells us as much in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So he finds these folks in Acts chapter 19 who only understood John's baptism. That's all they, that's all they, they got. And so Paul more fully explains to them what baptism really is and what Jesus has done. And those believers in Ephesus are then baptized in the name of Jesus, not in John's baptism. And in the same way we saw um, the Spirit come to them and the speaking in tongues that we saw in Acts chapter two, and we see in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, now we are in Acts chapter 19, we see the same type of thing, another movement of the Spirit coming and identifying with a specific group of people. So that happens in Ephesus. 
And then Paul begins to speak in the synagogues in Ephesus, and that's a pretty common thing that he does. He goes to the synagogues and he talks about Jesus because that's his background, but they don't like him too much, so then he moves into essentially um, somebody's classroom, the hall of Tyrannus. But he moves into a spot where he's able to teach for the next two years, and he works on the side, and he teaches, and he instructs about Jesus for two years, and then we get into chapter 19, the part, our passage for today. And we'll go... Kind slowly is probably a, an overstatement for what we'll do, but there's just some crazy things that happen in Acts chapter 19, things that you don't usually think about. So we'll start with verse 11. Oh, man, I got brighter here for a second. <clears throat> so look with me as we realize this part, that the gospel challenges views of power. Power is an important thing. We love power, having power looking like we have power, powerful people are cool, and at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, the Lord shows his power, which is different than any power that exists within this world. So look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched, uh, that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them, which is an interesting thing to read. Uh, you see maybe ministers today sell their you know, prayer cloths or handkerchiefs, and this is not that, right? <clears throat> if you have to highlight what goes on in verse 11, and God was doing miracles by the hands of Paul. God chose a means. We didn't choose the means. It wasn't like, hey, God, could you use this paper and that whomever it touches, like they all, all of a sudden think everything's great or they're like everything that in them is healed. No, no, no. Paul didn't choose the means. God chose the means in a city where that would have brought some, something to the attention of the people in Ephesus. So God is doing this work. God is doing it. Paul is not doing it. And we see some people then try and harness that in verse 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So we have Jewish exorcists who were trying to use specific wording, which is an important part of how magic worked in Ephesus. They had to get the words right. And so they saw things happening by Paul, what they thought was by Paul, and so they wanted to harness that power, so they then tried to do the same thing, but all they know is the name. So go by the name of Jesus that this guy Paul preaches. Now watch what happens here. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? So often we underestimate what goes on in the spiritual realm. Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So now, power number one, the handkerchiefs, then people try to grab that power for themselves, and it doesn't work, and in fact, the demonic seems to overpower these Jewish exorcists, but this is freaking people out. Appropriate to be a little freaked out by seven guys running around naked after getting beat up by a demon. So like, you are okay to be freaked out by something like that. But as everyone's hearing about it, they're starting to have this kind of fear of Jesus. Right, okay, there's something different about Jesus. And just knowing his name isn't enough. 
Now look at this. So as a response to that power, and a number of those who had uh, also, sorry, 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 verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value up, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now that's an interesting part of this power encounter, to use those words. Because if you look in verse 18, also many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like, fancy word, sanctification. Because people who were believers who were holding on to some parts of their old life said, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't even have the book in my presence. This, isn't, this is not a good thing to have. We have to get rid of it. And it's interesting because if you're here today and you're not a believer, you might hear the impression that churches will say to you, you have to go ahead and just get rid of every bad thing in the world. Well, the problem is you're not gonna think of them all. You're not gonna think of everything that you do that the Lord is not okay with in this moment. But as you grow in the Lord, you start to realize there are parts of your life that are not okay to hold on to. And that's what happened here in Ephesus. Right, a culture that was familiar with magical practices, that tried to conjure up words in the right way to get things that they wanted, or to get things for other people, they realized this is not okay to even be in my house. This is not good. And so they came and they confessed and they got rid of regardless of value and then the word of the Lord prevailed mightily in Ephesus. Why believers were leading the way with confession and repentance about what was to be done. Now, there is time when a complete separation from something, regardless of its earthly value, right? Because you could sell the books, right? If it's worth that much, sell it to the magic man down the street. He's not a believer, that's fine. But what, what happens? They know this isn't good for people to be able to follow Jesus. I can't have this. So if I sell this or get rid of this or move this somewhere else, you know what I'm doing? I'm just multiplying the negativity in the life of somebody else. And this is where our capitalism kind of doesn't work out. Because we go, why would you get rid of something that is so costly? Because compared to Jesus, it has zero cost. No value. And so they get rid of it. It's not even a question anymore. So though we look at that and go, man, you know, like, I don't have a Ouija board. I don't really practice magic. Let me ask you this. Are there things in which you might put your trust to get something for yourself? Maybe it's a self-help book. You kind of go to the self-help section and go, okay, if you do these seven things, or if you do these eight things in the right step, in the right order, then your life will be X, Y, and Z. It's kind of our secularized magic, isn't it? If I, if I find a source of life or some way to get money or gain contentment or have a better marriage or do this, then what am I trying to do? I'm trying to find a source of contentment in life outside of the Lord Jesus. It's just whitewashed magic. That's really all that it is. We're trying to gain something that we want but the Lord has not necessarily promised and we're trying to find it from a source other than him. It's the same thing. We do the same thing. So a question for you is, what are you clutching to that Jesus wants you to release? I remember having a friend who actually had a, not a book burning party, but a book tossing party. 
Um, which sounds weird because we want literacy, but she had certain books in her house that she knew were not helpful for her. And so she, she did, just like these folks did, realizing this is not the right kind of influence that I need in my life, it's gone. There was a time, I'm a movie fan, I like movies um, more than most. So people are like, hey, have you seen this movie? My answer is probably, yeah, I've seen it. But there was a time when we looked a few years back at all the movies we had, and we just thought, we don't need these. What good do they bring into our home? What good do I get? I'll tell you one. I love Silence of the Lambs. Love it. Love it. And I just thought, I don't need to watch this for the 50th time. I know the story. And, and what good? I mean, Anthony Hopkins, yeah, pretty good Hannibal. But I don't need to regularly let that influence me. Now, I'm not saying that needs to be you. Like, if I show up at your house and you have Silence of the Lambs, I'll be like, hey, can we watch that? Like, that'll probably be what I say. <laughs> so I'm not saying that must be you, but you realize, man, there's so many things, large and small, that I hold on to. Lottery tickets, maybe. I just, I just need to hold on to the hope that I'm going to get rich. I just, I just need that. Why? If every spiritual blessing in Christ belongs to us, then why are you trying to find earthly blessing? Because it, it fails. It doesn't help. So there's all kinds of ways that we try to gain for ourselves power and influence and joy and happiness other than Jesus. But what we learn in Acts chapter 19 first is God's power is greater and we probably don't need it. So what are you holding on to that Jesus might want you to release? Now, there's this brief statement here in 21 and 22 that kind of sets the way for the rest of the book. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. We realize from his epistles later, he wants to go to Spain too. He wants to keep going and pushing to the outer edges of the places he knows Jesus hasn't been preached. He's uninterested in places that Jesus has been preached and he just keeps pushing the envelope beyond, which is awesome. Unreached, 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 unreached. In fact, in Romans, he's like, I have no desire to preach Jesus in places where he's already been preached. Why would I do that? Lay on somebody else's foundation? Don't need to. I'm gonna go lay down new foundations in new towns, new cities, and new countries. So he wants to go to Rome and that's how a lot of the rest of the book goes. Having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And this is where things start to get crazy. Because it again messes with money. And we see this. The gospel challenges livelihoods. Challenges our views of power, but it challenges livelihoods. Our actual professions, professions and the things in which we receive income from are affected by us coming to faith or others coming to faith. So let's continue in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which was those who were following Jesus, the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, who was the goddess of Ephesus um, and a huge goddess in that city, in that culture, and brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, so Demetrius makes little shrines and little things for the goddess of Artemis, and his work and the work of the other craftsmen was, idol worship was a big part of their money. 
These he gathered together. Okay, so he got the craftsmen together with the workmen in similar trades. He said, hey, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. From this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius is annoyed, not because he's jealous for people worshiping Artemis, okay, there's a difference. He's not like, but we care so much, right? We know that John Piper quote, like missions exist because worship doesn't. He doesn't care if people worship Artemis or not. What he wants is for people to act like they worship Artemis so that he can have money because he has a job that is built on building things for idol worshipers because people are fallen and they worship things. So he's not like, man, Artemis, it's just gonna be terrible. It's terrible for him because Jesus was a threat to business. That's what was going on. Jesus was a threat to business. He was annoyed because people were putting their faith in Jesus and what happens when you do that? You don't need the stuff he's selling. And so he's trying to keep his livelihood. Now, this is an interesting question that I I just track it back. How many professions exist today because the world has fallen? Most? Because sin exists and the world has fallen. We have hospitals because people get sick. We have courts because people can't agree. We have lawyers because people don't trust one another. We have police officers because we know we break the law. We have firemen because things burn down. We have pastors, well no, no, it's not mess with that one. Um, And so many of our professions exist because things decay, which is a sign of the fall. And there are many professions that are built and marketed to people's sinfulness and the things in which they love to indulge. Built on that. I I remember actually, we were preaching Acts 19, uh, and a lawyer came up to me, and he was like, please, Stay away from my job. Because if people in droves in spring in the surrounding area started to put their faith in Jesus, it would affect us. It would affect us in all kinds of different ways. And that's what's going on. And Demetrius realizes that Jesus was a threat to business. In fact, though it's good for, or Demetrius sees it, we feel it and might feel it too. In large ways and in small ways, you go, man, I didn't realize. Like, a lot of my job is based on people being selfish and like trying to upsell and doing this and doing that. And so, like, I'm selling people things they don't need. I don't need to do that. And so we see the way in which when the gospel shows up and it changes people's hearts and changes their minds and changes the things that they care about, it can affect the world. So we see this in Demetrius, go, oh yeah, well, you're an idol worshiper, so that's why, but no, 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 no. 
So many of our own professions exist because people are idol worshipers. Now, so let me ask you this. What happens if people stop buying what you're selling because they're putting their faith in Jesus? And they're more content with what they have. They don't need more. They don't need to upgrade. They don't need to change. I I fear to have you all pull out your smartphones and to show me what model and type you have because they are marketed based on your dissatisfaction. So, right? They have things called planned obsolescence. We're gonna build this thing so that in a few years it's no longer that useful so they can get more. And we have people who who exist to learn us and sell things to us, and so that might be some of you, sorry. because they know the human heart. There are some believers who are salesmen that I love the fact that you are. But sometimes you might go, and you probably have done this, right? You go, you know what, you don't need this. I mean, I can sell it to you, but you don't need it. I can promise you that. That's a hard thing to do, your boss may not like that. If you actually look and learn people and care about them and you go, well, I I sure could give this to you, but you don't need it. I could prescribe you more medicine, but honestly, just rub some dirt on it. Like, that's, that's all you really need. It will be fine. It may not be fine in three days. It might be fine in seven, but just like, you'll survive. And so when we start to do that and we pull on the threads of our own jobs and livelihoods, we realize so much of it. I mean, if you guys weren't falling, I'd be out of a job. And so we have to realize even in this, Jesus is not just a threat to an idol worshiper's business, it's often a threat to just how the world operates. We recently, you know, bought our house and I'm not gonna give anybody, I did this, I gave my address one time, I'm not gonna do it this time because of what I'm gonna share, but this security guy showed up because apparently when you sell your house, everybody, or buy a house, everybody finds out. So I have people at my door selling me all kinds of stuff. Do you want this, do you want that, do you want that? So the, you know, ADT guys, they're like, hey, do you need ADT? I'm like, honestly, no, I, I don't need that. Why? Well, because right now I have this landscaping guy here and all my money is going to him because my house is getting water in it, so that's why. But maybe one day, I mean, are you interested? Not really, but you can give me your stuff. So you have security to protect our nice stuff, but what would happen if you were just content and didn't have nice stuff? You don't need to protect anything at that point in time, because no one's gonna steal it. Don't go to Genesis Church's houses because they don't have anything nice. That's different, right? That's a different way to think about how the world works. Now, knowing Jesus was a threat to business, the crowds get a little freaked out. And as you read this, you might think, this isn't really how it works, but it is. A riot almost breaks out. Um, And there was even an article presented in the 70s, a journal article that was talking about riot mentality And how pretty soon, like once the first few people join in and doing something, the others just join in because others are, right? Like they they didn't even intend to start their day in a riot, but as more people get involved, the the cost to you decreases, right? 
So if there's 100 people doing something, you're more likely to do it because you're also less likely to get caught. And so look what happens right here. Verse 28, when they had heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowds, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to go into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. That's how it works. I mean, you ever see like a crowd? Well, you start doing, oh, what are they looking at? And you just try and find out what they're, you don't even know what they're looking at, but a lot of people looking at something means you better too. And so what do they do? They just all start looking. Some of the crowd then prompted Alexander, the Jew, from the, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioning with his hand, which is a common way in the book of Acts that they're, gonna say, they're about to say something. Hey, everybody. So he motioned with his hands. He wanted to make a defense, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It sounds bizarre, but it's not. Because crowds invite crowds and people are staring and the kids are like, what are we yelling? I wanna yell too. I mean, you ever see it? I've gone to LSU games and people just start cheering stuff. And when they start cheering stuff, you're like, I wanna cheer too. And so you're going back and forth across the stadium, go, Tigers. Everyone's just yelling, like, this is awesome. And the kids who are there, they don't even know what's going on, but they're gonna yell too because everyone else is yelling. And so you show up and you hear the roar. Why are people roaring? What's going on? And everyone's just kind of getting engaged in this thing. Demetrius probably feels like he's won. He's like, got it, everyone's for it. This, isn't, this, is, this is gonna be awesome. Now, what happens then at the end is it's an, a high up person, the town clerk, shows up in verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So apparently like a meteor or something fell and because that happened, they thought the gods cared about this place. So because the gods cared about this place, then we're gonna build the temple here, and this is why, you know, he's like, this place is great. That's essentially what he's gonna say. Make Ephesus great again. Like, that's what he's talking about. So seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess, and if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he has said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So you have the townkeeper. Now there was a speech given earlier in Acts. <clears throat> and that speech went something like this. They were frustrated about people coming to Jesus. Smart Jew stands up and he says, hey, listen, you remember all these people who claimed a new way of life and they died or their movement stopped? If what, if what they're preaching, if what Peter's preaching, what John's preaching, if it's like that, then it's gonna die down. And if it's not, you don't wanna get in the way of it because you would be seen opposing God. 
Now that speech, earlier in Acts, lines up with this one but differently because the town clerk is essentially going, hey, the rock fell here, so we're good. We're good. We don't have anything to worry about. If you're bothered with these guys or you think they're doing something wrong, go ahead and file a complaint and deal with it in the courts because they're open and they can hear your complaint. But really, we just need to shut this thing down. So one guy earlier in Acts is going, we don't want to stop this if it's God. And if it's not from God, it's going to stop. And then we have another guy going, hey, we don't really need to stop this because Artemis is awesome and the rock fell from the sky and like, like, we have God's mark here. Let me show you something. This is, uh, behind me, the temple of Artemis from back in the day. Beautiful, large, one of the wonders of the world. This is it today. Not much left. So, jokes on town clerk. (laughs) Because what does he say? We have nothing to worry about. Demetrius, your industry is going to be fine. Tradespeople, craftsmen, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. God has blessed this place. The gods have blessed this place. Whatever they're preaching and doing, it's not hurting anybody, it's not harming anybody. Let them go ahead and do their thing. But this place, we're good. They're not good, are they? They were putting their trust in things made by human hands. They were putting their trust in their idols and in their shrines and in their temples and in their stories. Now there's nothing. There's a pillar, a few ruins, and some grass you gotta mow. But there's no goddess. There are no gods. But you know who still remains? Jesus. You know who's still here? Jesus. You know who still matters? Jesus. So whatever we're clutching to that gives us joy, identity, hope, income, what happens when it runs dry? What happens when it no longer helps? What happens when the market dips? When people no longer count on that industry or that product or that thing and you're stuck? That's where your hope really gets tested, isn't it? I was really trusting in the market to just keep being better and better and better. That's where I had put all of my hope. I was really just trusting for people to kind of be silly and goofy and not realize that I was selling them essentially snake oil. Like that's, 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 that's now different. They've caught on. I was hoping that people would live like this or do this. I was really counting on X. Well, when anytime we do those things and the source of our hope is not Jesus, we will be let down. But the problem is this, that temple stood for a while. And so you might feel good for decades. You might tell your children to feel good for decades and your grandchildren to feel good for decades, but anything other than Jesus fails you. Any hope other than Jesus fails you. Any, any, anything you long for, delight in, find your identity in will eventually fail you. And it may not even, you may, not, you may realize it doesn't fail you while you're living. You realize it failed you when you die. This got me nothing. This got me nowhere. But at that point in time, honestly, it's too late. So where's your hope today? 
Is it in Jesus? Or is it in your career? Is it in Jesus or is it in your bank account? Is it in Jesus or is it in your confidence that people are fallen and they're going to stay that way? Is it in Jesus or is it somewhere else? Our hope at Genesis always is that it's in Jesus. Our longing for you time and time again, and you might be following Jesus and then realize you've got a shelf full of books, whatever those books you know, stand for in your life, that you've got to throw away. A way of living and believing and behaving that doesn't align. Well, the gracious thing about Jesus is this. The believers earlier in Acts chapter 19 who got rid of all of those books were still believers at that time. And then as they saw more and more of the goodness of God toward them and the power of God, they realized they didn't need it. And so even for the believer today, are there things in which you are trusting that really you don't need to be trusting in? Because they will be hollow and they will be shallow. And you even kind of see this, this response, which is through the confession and repentance of the church, it grew. Through the church following after the Lord, having confidence in the Lord, it Increased The word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily, verse 20. That comes after this kind of mass confession and repentance from the believers who were in Ephesus. The cities get transformed and Jesus shows up and the church there believes he is who he is and lives like it. Let me pray for us. Father, as we engage in your word, as we listen, hear, obey, we would ask of nothing more than our joy and our hope to be in the Lord Jesus. That the way that he might influence our hopes, our idolatry, whatever it might be, the way he influences, changes, challenges, transforms that God, might you bring that to bear even this morning that we could confess that we hold on to the wrong things so often that you are Lord and you are good and you care. So Father, move mightily in our church. Move mightily in this city. Change industries. Change hearts. Change men and women and children to follow after you, to be content in you, and to allow whatever comes to come through that. You are good to us. And we thank you for the love you have shown us in your son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.